1: Chris Trigger and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911, and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com.
2: I mean, we're on the northern end of the Gulf, mm-hmm. where we're at. Right. So we get a lot of a lot of big. You know, you asked about cobia a while ago. I mean, we get a lot of cobia, 60 to 80 pound range yeah, over here, which are one. huge. Um, we've, I've seen fish over hundred pounds several mm. times offshore, you know, within 20, 30 miles. And, and, um, but I, I do notice that, you know, um, near, you know, you fish in Venice a lot, you know, so the Mississippi river Delta, that whole area is just so nutrient loaded. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a bigger congregation of the larger tunas right. and a lot of the pelagics over there, I think because of that specifically um our our tuna is over here i just went tuna fishing for yellowfin last week and um you know our average fish is in the 60 to 80 pound range um and we get you know a lot of smaller ones too but you know a big tuna for over here is 125 to 150 pound yellowfin for sure hi there this is derek york with the impact outdoors podcast and this is the tom Rollin podcast
3: Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast today. We got a good one for you. Derek York hosts the Impact Outdoors podcast. He's a cool guy, does a lot of work with kids, getting them into the outdoors and doing some cool programs like the Texas Brigades. We're going to talk about that and all his work with the fisheries and tagging sharks and all kinds of other cool stuff. So stick around for a great interview with Derek York from Impact Outdoors. And one more thing is if you like this podcast, which I hope that you do. It's, it's uh, become a lot of what I do. So I'm trying to get the best guests possible. I'm trying to have the best interviews possible and deliver the best content to you guys that I can. One way that I've been able to do that is to receive um, guest suggestions, show suggestions, topic suggestions, questions from you guys and i listen i really do we've gotten some of the best guests that we've had on the podcast because someone has suggested it from the audience i go and check these people out and sure enough they are really cool people i'm sure you know some people like that i like good guests i like guests that have a story they don't have to be bill dance or roland martin or or uh anybody that that anybody's ever heard of lots of people have cool stories That is not the defining thing of a good guest, in my opinion. So if you have suggestions about guests, about show topics, you have questions you'd like for me to answer on the podcast, there is one way to get a hold of me and give me all of those things. It is the best way. It is a text number that I have set up. It is area code 305-930-7346. You can text the word team. To that, and you will be in the inner circle if you want um, updates and and all the cool stuff that we're doing. I'll be happy to provide that to you there. If you want to just ask questions, fire away, whatever you want to do. If you have suggestions for the show, that would be awesome, especially guest suggestions. And if you like this podcast, you can also go to iTunes and give us a rating and review. Five stars would be the best, and. A review. can You can look at some of the reviews that are up there and people have said the nicest things and it's so cool to see that. But a lot of times they just say, you know, I really like this one particular episode and this is why. That's a great review. Whatever you want to do, whatever you want to say is fine. Uh, That would be awesome. So that will help other people to find the show and help the show keep growing. We can have more and better guests and keep doing it for a lot longer. So that's it for today. Stick around for this awesome interview with Derek York from Impact Outdoors coming right now. Derek, what's happening? How are you?
2: Hey, man. We're just uh, hanging out over here in South Texas, man. Just uh, taking it one day at a time. Pretty busy right now. Lots going
3: on. So really? how are you, buddy? Well, I'm I'm doing well. What do you got going on? Well, we just
2: finished up uh, our big event that we had over in West Texas and uh, had some uh, rolling boys over here with us. And, know. Uh, we, we had a... We had a great opportunity to do a big networking event with them. Um, you know, I was kind of looking at something to do with my podcast and get some other people involved, and uh, from across the United States. And um, luckily, had Turner and Hayden come over as one of the podcasts, and uh, had some people from New York, Ohio, Montana, Texas, Oklahoma. And a few other places come in and uh, we had a great time, did some turkey hunting. No turkeys were harmed during that weekend, (laughs) but um, we've seen plenty, you know, and uh, I think Turner and Hayden both were pretty close to getting a bird, but uh, they got some good footage and stuff, but uh, we had a great time. It was a great networking event and uh, really looking forward to see where that program goes next year.
3: Yeah. That's pretty exciting that you're getting that going because, um, you know, you get, there's a lot of people that are, that are doing podcasts. Most. Mm people that are doing podcasts these days are not being successful with it. Um, In other words, there's about 90% of the podcasts only make it one or two episodes. So getting together and uh, helping each other out and kind of talking about it, that certainly will help. Um, It'll go a long way to, to making sure that people can kind of continue with it because I don't know, what, what do you think it is about, I mean, you've had your podcast going for a while and you've probably seen other podcasts start and stop. What do you think it is about, that what's the, what's the challenge there that, that, that people start one, but they don't finish it.
2: It's definitely a challenge. It is a lot more work than most people think it probably (laughs) is, as you well know. Um, you know, I mean, when I started mine, you know, I was like, you know, I talked to several people and they were just like, consistency is the thing. (laughs) And, um, being able to provide the content on a routine basis. So people get accustomed to that. And, um, that's been a challenge here lately, but we've been really good at putting out episode every other week. Um, And I think just, you know, you got to make the time for it. so I've got a pretty crammed schedule with everything I've got going on, working full time and I've got a charter business I run and then starting up the podcast and then two little kids. So it's a, you know, a lot of short (laughs) nights sleep, but uh, in the end, it's been worth it over the past year and a half I've been doing it and um, really trying to take that next step and grow it, you know, to a bigger national audience. And, um, you know, I've been really blessed um, to have some great guests, over yeah. the last year including yourself and um that's that's been a plus you know because as you all well know you know social media is such a big deal and doing interviews with people and having them share it and stuff and uh it just it's just the
3: the effect of it who, all who has been one of your favorite guests so far well
2: tom Rowland, and <laughs> then uh, um, i had a really good interview with cuz uh, strickland from moss yoke um a few weeks back and um just hearing some of the stories about how the hunting TV world and industry all started up back in the eighties and, uh, back when the, the best TV, um, you know, was really starting to come out for hunting and fishing and stuff like that. And then, um, I interviewed Alma glass down in Australia oh, yeah. um, a few months back. And that was a lot of fun. It was a late one. I had to interview him about one o'clock in the morning here at Texas time. So to be able to talk to him, you know, and, um, um, that was a good interview, um, and, uh, you know, just, and I've, I've met a lot of people through Instagram and, uh, that's a great place to find people to interview. And uh, a lot of people you've never heard of, um, one really, really cool relationship we've developed over the past years with uh, a group called kids outdoors and they're based up North and, um, and they do a lot with their kids traveling around the country and showing them hunting and fishing and wildlife you know, survival techniques and stuff like that. We've had them down here to Texas last year and filmed a couple episodes for their show on the water and just really developed a good relationship with them and several other people. So, um, Nice.
3: So you, you still have your, your Texas brigades. Are you still involved with that? Yes. Yeah.
2: And we're right in the middle of uh, getting ready to start up our camp season. So we have, um, my wife and I got asked to, to, To be part of this program, the Texas Brigades, back in late 2009 and um, serving as just instructors at a freshwater fisheries conservation and leadership camp, we knew nothing about it. So we we went ahead and jumped in. And um, it's a five-day program. These kids are selected from all across Texas and some from even out of Texas. And uh, they come in, they stay for the whole time. And we show up and, and we kind of have our game plan for every day. It's a very rigorous schedule for the kids and um, not really knowing how it was going to go, but we were so hooked the first couple of days and seeing the the efforts the kids put into this program and what, you know, we get back as the adults and stuff is just tremendous. Um, the program really instills developing leadership and public speaking skills with these kids, which is as you know, and, is hard to come by these days that's for wrapped, anybody, and
3: that's kind of wrapped into the outdoors as well. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. how do you do that? How do you how do you teach them public speaking skills and so and leadership? We kind
2: of we kind of do it. Um, Okay, what's the word subliminally so they don't really know yeah. it at first right. um the kids are all divided up into different groups schools flocks coveys whatever for each camp and um so they work as a team throughout the week and so we have a lot of um basically our schedule starts at 5 36 o'clock in the morning and runs till about 11 o'clock at night and it's pretty much non-stop and we're changing from classroom settings to outdoor settings and really try to do as m- everything we can hands-on that way they retain the information Mm -hmm. and um, because if you don't do it yourself you're never going to remember you know what what you've done during the week so um, but as far as the public speaking and stuff we do a lot of where they have to you know one of the simplest things we do is we give each student a quote at the beginning of the first day and so their job initially is to memorize that quote and then they have to get up in front of the group throughout the first couple of days and say their quote and then say what it means to them, how they interpret that. And um, that really kind of is the first step in breaking that shell, you know, to get them up. And some of the kids are really introverted, you know, like I was Hmm. when I was younger, you know, I hated talking in front of anybody Yeah. and um, but that really, really works. And, and I'll give a real quick example. We had, and this was at the Bass Brigade camp probably, 2012 or something like that we had a young lady that showed up first time she'd ever been away from home and um you know it's it's pretty you know i'm sure nerve-wracking going into something like this and uh she had a really hard first day and second day wanted to go home you know we had her on the phone with the parents trying to to get her and um by the third day she had realized what we were what we were doing and and got I mean she just took over and by the end of the week the cadets the kids that are at camp and all the instructors and um, we vote on the top cadet for that whole week and she won that year really she did a 180 and that just proved to us you know the success of the program and what we're doing is working for these kids and um, being involved with it over the last 10 plus years I guess now we've seen these kids go out of high school after they went through the brigades programs, multiple camps each summer, and, and now they went into college and now they've got jobs, you know, in their careers and stuff. And, uh, you know, we're not looking to make them all biologists or game wardens and, and things like that. We just want them to be conservation aware, be well-informed. Um, cause it's a passion that they obviously already have love being outdoors and, um, and you know being successful in life and the skills that we're teaching them at these programs is really helping to do that that's cool
3: so how do you how do you go about picking the quotes that you're gonna give all these kids
2: oh we've got a we've got a long list of stuff we've used over the years and um you know just from from all different people you know and uh and and they're just predetermined I mean there's no we just we have a a, they each get a journal every week and so we just attach the quote inside that and um they get it and and uh, it's pretty funny because we get a lot of these quotes we use every year and you hear just different interpretations of them Mm -hmm. and it's pretty cool to see how the kids react to them and stuff and uh um Some of the other stuff that we do, um, which is pretty interesting. So this is very conservation oriented, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, my day jobs, I work for the state here in Texas as a fisheries technician um, here in Galveston. And um, we do a lot of public meetings, as I'm sure FWC does over in Florida, um, about certain issues and stuff when they're looking at changing regulations and things like that. And um, so we do a mock stakeholder meeting with the kids and we assign each one of the groups of kids a different role to play in that, whether it's representing a group like CCA or commercial fishermen or recreational fishermen or some group like PETA or something like that um, that would normally show up to some of these meetings, you know, to voice their opinions. And um, we'll pick a topic. Um, You know, some of the ones we've used in the past are, you know, flounder is a big issue down here as long along with oysters and uh, obviously trout and redfish. The trout regulations have been changing quite a bit the last few years. And so we'll pick one of those, and um, they basically have a, a few days to, to go over that, come up with their strategy, and then we have a panel of instructors that sits up in the front of the room. They come up in front of everybody and present their case, whether they're for or against it, and why or why not, and, um, and then we grade them on that, and so that's one of the things um, – you know, they're competing all week for different prizes and things like that. and kind of as an incentive, you know, fishing trips and, mm-hmm. and different things. So, um, that kind of helps along with that, but, um, it's pretty, it's pretty funny. These kids are so creative, man. Some of them will, will get dressed up in waiters and all kinds of stuff, make signs and all kinds of cool stuff. So it's, it's a pretty neat experience. So, and then, um, you know, we do, we do other things. We do a lot of team building events throughout the week, um, you know, just try to get them like? going. So some of them are, um, we do a, you know, a lot of them are trust things. So we'll do like what we call a lap sit and, uh, we we'll have everybody sitting or stand in a circle and then we'll just have everybody sit down and see if they can create a sitting circle on top of each other's knees and stuff. And, mm-hmm. and, um, we'll do different things, you know, where they've got to, um, one of the funniest things we do is where they really got to work together is um we have a giant rubber ring tied to ropes and we'll have the six or seven people in each group each have a rope and they have to be able to move and stack cans like coffee cans or something like that mm-hmm. on top of each other um in a pyramid or whatever we'll give them different things to work on and you think it sounds pretty stupid but it's it's actually a really cool way to get them to talk to each other and not be you know they have to learn not to yell over each other and, and really work together. Mm to accomplish that goal. So,
3: yeah, and then as far as the, you know, outdoor stuff, like once you kind of get them to 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 be understanding these leadership qualities and the and the mm-hmm. the public speaking and all of that, like what what's involved in the in the camp as far as hands-on kind of outdoor stuff?
2: So, you know, we do the we start out the first day, you know, kind of just going over the fish biology and anatomy. Um, we do some dissections. Um, we're heavily involved with Texas A&M University of Galveston. And uh, so we have a lot of my friends down there from the um, shark and fish lab come in. And um, so we'll do some dissections on sharks and fish and go over just basic anatomy and biology of the fish mm-hmm. um but uh really the 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 cool stuff you know we get in we, we take them out on the boats and uh so they get to go out firsthand and see how as fisheries managers um, we collect our data and so we get to show them how we utilize um, shrimp nets for catching stuff out on the bay bottoms um we'll run a small gill net um and uh, so they can see how that is you know effective on sampling the larger fish and um, we do bag scenes, oyster dredges and different things like that and um, kind of go over what we catch and why those species are found in that particular area versus mm-hmm. the other areas and things and then um, we also do a we're lucky because where we have coastal brigade, um, in Galveston, we're close to a lot of stuff. And a lot of the other brigades camps are out in central and West Texas. So they're, you know, private ranches and things. So we're close to one of our, um, coastal fisheries hatcheries. And so we get to spend a whole day down there and they get a super in-depth kind of, tour of the facility from wow. you know how the fish are spawned and how they develop the eggs and and the hatchlings and, and the fish into the into the stock tanks and stuff and um, they really enjoy that and then um, we also do a, a day at the Galveston Island State Park and we do a huge beach versus bay comparison hmm. where we look at different things that we find on the beachfront versus in the bay. We kind of bust the kids back and forth in different groups and, and do that. And, um, it takes a lot of people to put this on. I mean, we yeah. utilize a ton of volunteers. We have anywhere mm-hmm. from 20 to 30 volunteers a day helping, um, with all this. Cause we try to, you know, the classroom stuff is everybody together, but when we go out, um, we do rotational types setups. And so it's more hands-on. So it's smaller groups, more attention to them from the instructors. And, and, uh, that really seems to be the ticket, you know, to making everything work.
3: Hmm. How does a kid get involved in, in that? Like, how would somebody go to that? You said they had so, to be selected, but
2: yeah. So. Um, it is a competitive process. Um, the application process for brigades starts November 1st and usually ends March 15th. And it's basically all online. Um, they just have to go to the brigades website, texasbrigades.org, O R G, and uh, there's an application on there for that. Um, they just have to fill out basically, you know. Stuff about school, any extracurricular stuff they do. We kind of base the the scoring of the applications on that, but they also have to write two essays, mm. and those questions for the essays change every year. Um, usually, ones on a on the why are you you know passionate about conservation or the outdoors, and ones usually um, tailored towards the leadership question. You know, who's a leader, um, that kind of thing. And um,
3: that's interesting. So you're so kind of the the kids that are doing really well in school are the ones that are getting selected for this. Like you have that, that, that application and that, and the essays and stuff like that. It seemed like it would kind of lend itself to somebody that is already. Yeah. You would, you
2: would think that, um, and and we get a lot of kids, um, as far as the application goes, when we're grading them that they don't have a lot of sports and like doing FFA and four H and stuff like that, but they really shine in their writing in their essays, you know, and, um, and they're not long essays, Tom, they're like 500 words or something yeah. like that, you know, but, but, um, you know, that's, that's one thing that, that I'm always concerned about, you know, is, you know, everybody gets a fair chance at this and, and, um, and it's, it's worked out, you know, we've got we've got tons of kids from all different backgrounds and walks of life and the uh, and it's really been cool to see how successful they've been after going through the. Oh, through I'm the sure programs.
3: it sounds like an amazing program. But when I when I hear that, I think about myself in in uh, how old are these kids?
1: At Midway USA, we know the AR fifteen is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on, and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on
2: Fishing Booker.
3: These are 13 to 17. 13 to 17? Okay, well, Mm -hmm. maybe I had started to kind of understand the way the world worked by then, but not, not necessarily it. 13 or 14, I didn't do really very well in school. I, I just, it, it was hard for me to concentrate. I liked the sports aspect of it. It was really cool there. And, I, you know, it wasn't like, I don't know, I probably would have been di- diagnosed with eight or 10 learning disabilities uh, had, had, you know, today's medicine um, been part of it. But something like that program would have probably... Really had an amazing impact on me. Somebody that wasn't interested in school, somebody that wasn't interested, thought learning was was boring, right? But I wasn't learning the things that I was interested in. Where sometimes if you can find, if you can get to that kid that is like that, and you can show Mm -hmm. them something that they're interested in, and man, all of a sudden you, you see that they're they're not dumb they're incredibly smart actually they just were incredibly non-interested in what's going on in school um have you seen that kind of a an example play out
2: absolutely and you know we've got several kids that come to mind they're not kids now they're adults but um that have you know kind of came in that same exactly what you're talking about you know didn't have the best gpa and things like that and and um just needed something to grab their attention. Mm-hmm. And I think the success of this program, which this program has been around for almost 30 years now, wow. um, is is just that, you know, being able to give them something that they don't get in normal public education, which is the hands-on stuff. You know, I mean, you're in a class, especially today. I mean, look at it now, you know, half these kids are still working from home across the country. And, and so being able to provide these opportunities for them to to one meet all these professionals you know in, in this world private and public both um as far as you know fisheries and wildlife biologists and game wardens and you know people working in the private sector and things like that and and just being able to get the experience of being around them um you know it's it's huge and uh everybody i know says the same thing it's like man why didn't they have this when i was growing up you know right I mean, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma and uh, they have something now it's similar. It's a one day program, but, um, and there's lots of youth camps and stuff like that that are fishing camps or hunting camps, but a lot of them don't really instill the, the characteristics that we're trying to to help these kids develop, you know, with the public speaking and the leadership team building and now, stuff. That's a
3: really interesting, um, dynamic to throw in there because, Mm-hmm. Uh, again you have somebody that would be really 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 uncomfortable getting in front of the 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 class to do a math problem but if you're talking about something that they're interested in they might be the best in the whole class at public speaking when they're talking about an yep. issue that make that 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 they're interested in like you know i don't know mm-hmm. what something associated with redfish or like you said the flounder um they might they might really do do well with that. But I'm sure that you see that all the time. But that's, uh, that's cool that, that that's going on there. How many, how many sessions will will you guys put on in the summer? So
2: um, we have eight camps, and they all run in June and July. The first one starts June 1st or 2nd this summer. Um, and the other camps include, we have a North and South Texas um, camp on Bob White Quail, Mm, um covering really? the quail habitat and 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 stuff working with bob whites and all the other different species that live here in texas um we have a north and south texas buckskin brigade focusing on whitetail deer mm. and then um we have the bass brigade which is all freshwater and uh gary klein um one of the founders for major league fishing is heavily yeah. involved with that program along with a lot of other great people um we spent a lot of time up there we spent about six years working with that program and uh um, it's awesome um we have one on ranch uh, the ranch industry called ranch brigade and that is one of our most popular camps um for sure um really working you know just on you know rangeland ecology ranching lifestyle with cattle and and, and things like that and and uh, they do a lot of a lot of fun things they have t-post driving contests and all kinds of <laughs> crazy stuff but uh you
3: get to um, fish in and- the ranch tanks
2: uh the bass brigade camp does yeah,
3: man. <laughs> so they have that'd it at worth, the same place it'd be worth going just for that i know that there's some amazing fishing in some of those oh yeah what they call stock tanks they can it, it, you get to them and you're thinking it's going to be this rectangular shaped uh yeah, mud pit mud pit <laughs> and it's a it's a lake bigger than the one that you have at your house everything's bigger in texas that's what they say before you go there and when you get there you realize oh Yeah. It's not just a little bit bigger. Like everything is like way bigger. I'm going to this person's house and I've passed three houses on the way in and they're all bigger than any house I've ever seen. And those are all considered the guest house. Like how far could this driveway go? Right. Miles. And then finally you get to the main house and they're like, Oh, you can go fish in the pond and you drive over a little hill and there's a giant lake there. You're like, well, where's yep. the pond? Because this doesn't seem like the <laughs> pond. <is> it? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's just funny, man, that the that everything is bigger than Texas and including including the uh the hospitality. I've had really good luck yeah. there with uh with with hospitality and just people just being generally incredibly nice and welcoming and and uh I mean Texas is a good state, man.
2: It is. And being born in Oklahoma and living there for twenty 20- 21, 22 years, you know, Oklahoma is the same way. And, uh, I always said when I was growing up, I said, I'll never move to Texas. You know, that was kind of, you know, our, our, our rival and every sport and everything. And, uh, and I'll probably never leave Texas now. So, yeah.
3: well, I mean, Oklahoma is nice and everything, but you're missing a, a, a major part of what is interesting about Texas. And that's the coast. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, the, the Texas coast, I, I did a podcast with, um, um, uh, stilt house. Um, what's it? Well, I'm oh mm-hmm. forgetting his name. Uh, yeah, I remember, Mike yeah. Madrano. Mike Madrano. We met in Christmas Island and mm-hmm. he, he just wrote this incredibly beautiful book on the stilt houses of Texas. And, and really when you start flipping through that book, if you're, if you've been to Texas once or twice or whatever, you start flipping through that book and you're like, Whoa, there is obviously a lot of Texas that I haven't seen. And that I should go see. Um, but that, that is a cool book. If you haven't, read that or picked it up, or if you're a fan of, of beautiful coffee table books, it's got Tim Romano photography in it. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's really one of the nicest books that I have in my, you know, on my shelf here. And um, it, it's just cool. But the, I mean, parts of Texas look like South Carolina parts of Texas look like the Florida keys parts of Texas look like, look like, you know, obviously Mexico and, mm-hmm. and uh, further South than that. It's just, it's just a cool, cool place. I like that Port Aransas area when i when i've fished i i've i have incredibly limited uh texas fishing experience but port aransas is a place that we went and spent about a week pre-fishing for a redfish tournament and um, yeah. that was nice we were also in Kima, and i keep yeah. harping on how bad Kima was but uh, well sorry for we that got, we got to get you
2: back over because Kima is literally about five minutes from where i'm at is right it? now
3: so you know how to fish in that <laughs> in that muddy water Catch a
2: lot of redfish I'm over sure there. I'm sure you do. So, I'm sure
3: there's a lot of redfish to catch. I, It's yeah. it's just the kind of thing where you just, it, it was the polar opposite of our mm-hmm. fishing. I mean, we're used to clear water, shallow water. This, I was just like, man, I don't, I, I mean, <laughs> obviously this looks like, this looks like the Florida Keys after a category five hurricane here. Yeah. This is what that, that water looks like. But the guys that were there, man, they knew how to catch them. They could absolutely do it. And I'm sure you can too. Um, yep. but it's interesting in, in a different deal. Those guys are fishing slicks um, where, mm-hmm. where the fish are eating under the surface and you see a slick on top of the water where they are eating these men, Hayden or whatever um, they're eating and they leave a slick. And sure enough, you fish that just like you fish a wake or a tail or, or, mm-hmm. or anything like a roll, a tarpon and roll uh, something yep. that is visible that shows you where the fish are. And uh, I mean, that was all new to us, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, we've got a lot of marsh and stuff and, uh, but mm-hmm. you know, like you said, water, water visibility here is totally different. You know, even from Puerto Rans, Puerto Rans is a lot generally cleaner looking mm-hmm. water. Yeah. Um, and it's just the, it's just the sediment load is all it is. We're kind of, you know, it's kind of, I guess probably not the best term, but I mean, I always call we're kind of up in the armpit of the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. So we have predominant Southeast flow. You know, from the Gulf, and that just always constantly pushing sediment up into this end of of this area. And um, so we have a lot you know more stained water. And um, but we get our days where it looks like Bermuda in really? the summertime. And um right last there, year was, like out of Kima, Yeah, we get some days where it's just crystal clear. Um, last year was incredible all summer long. Usually we'll get it in, in days, you know, a week at the most, where we'll have really nice water um but uh last summer man i ran a lot of trips out of the the gulf passes and then lower part of the bay and um just beautiful conditions almost to the point where it was hard to harder to catch fish just because you know we're not used to fishing in that Mm -hmm. you know so we kind of had to reverse roll there but um you know we still you know we got a lot of pelagics that came into the bay and stuff a lot more triple tail than normal and cobia and and things like that so that's always exciting
3: you would see uh what's what what's like a, a good size cobia or or a good size oh we tail, get both some of them uh,
2: we've caught i've caught several tails up to 15 pounds over that's here good. state records right around 30 i think mm-hmm. down um most of the bigger triple tail in texas tend to be caught um south of here in the matagorda bay ecosystem really? Um, but we do get quite a few good numbers up here. Um, but, uh, the Matagorda Bay produces a lot of big fish in the bay. You know, they, you- they are typically fishing crab trap pots and stuff mm-hmm. for them.
3: Yeah. That's the same kind of thing that we do in the, in the keys for the triple tail, except, uh, in the last couple of years, there's just been this explosion of triple tail numbers and they're not necessarily keying in on any structure you just get into an area and you look out there and there's a there's a black fish floating there and another one over there and another one over there and another one over there one One of the things with your fisheries work um one of the things that we saw with our triple tail last year was this red sore on their shoulder Mm -hmm. right and it was always, I mean, it was so visible that you would see a black fish with a red spot on it. And sometimes you would see the red spot before you would see even anything else. And, um, I asked a bunch of different biologists and, and people that should know a lot more about fish than I do, uh, what they thought that was. And obviously, you know, Richard Black and all the fishing guides I talked to, they're saying, well, it's probably some sort of spawning thing where they're rubbing up against something, uh, another fish or a fish is biting or something, but it's only on one side and it's right on the shoulder area. And it was, it wasn't like a sore, like a sick fish. It was Mm -hmm. like, it was more like, you know, uh, when fish are bedding and their tails get, um, right. Kind of worn. And, and you can see that like, it's going to heal and it doesn't form like a sore or a cyst or anything like that, but it's just this red spot where the scales have been knocked off. And I mean, Rich even was like, maybe they're getting sunburned like, like that, but I don't think they're getting sunburned.
2: Uh, (laughs) I don't know. I haven't seen any of that on any fish over here or heard of anything like that over here. Um, I'll send you a picture
3: of it. In fact, maybe, I don't know if I can, if I can do it right now, but we'll, we'll put it in post. Uh, Connor can put a picture up of what we're talking about. Um, But gosh, maybe I could send it to you. I don't yeah. I'll probably, if I but, start doing this, Connor's not here today. And if I start doing this, I'm probably going <laughs> to hang up on you and that'll be it. Well, so we'll put it up well, there, but I'll send you a picture after and you can, you can check it out. But, um, yeah. yeah interesting thing. And what do you, th- what do you think about the, the theory that, that fish are the, the largest in the northernmost portion of their range, generally, as a general rule of thumb?
2: You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, as far as around here i mean i don't really think i mean we're on the northern end of the gulf Mm -hmm, where we're at so we get a lot of a lot of big you know you asked about cobia a while ago i mean we get a lot of cobia, 60 to 80 pound range over here which are huge um we've i've seen fish over 100 pounds several Mm. times offshore you know within 20 30 miles and and um but i i do notice that you know um near you know you fish in venice a lot you know so the mississippi river delta that whole area is just so nutrient loaded Mm -hmm. you know you have a bigger congregation of the larger tunas and a lot of the pelagics over there i think because of that specifically um our our tunas over here i just went tuna fishing for yellowfin last week and um you know our average fish is in the 60 to 80 pound range Mm. um and we get you know a lot of smaller ones too but you know, big tuna for over here is 125 to 150-pound yellowfin for sure. Um, but it's weird, though, because we're seeing increased numbers in bluefin tuna catches right bluefin. now through the last several years. You know,
3: there's been a lot more bluefins. Uh, we're seeing them in the Keys. There's, I mean, it helps with Instagram uh, because, you know, maybe back a few, not even that many years ago, you might hear somebody and they're like, oh, I think we saw a bluefin. You don't know, like, yeah. but now there's a five minute video of a bluefin circling the boat and coming right next to the boat. I mean, it was a bluefin. There was a a, a, a guy had a, a a video of a of a yellowfin underneath the one of the bridges in the Keys, and it's mm-hmm. like six feet deep there, and yeah. and it's so crazy? under the bridge and you would hear you might hear somebody say oh yeah i saw a tuna you're like ah oh, that's definitely a jack crevel you know like <laughs> i don't think that you you know what you're talking about but then there's a video and it's not like just a quick little snippet it's it's minutes of video yeah. of this tuna underneath the bridge it's crazy but there's been a lot more bluefin seen um in the Keys, there have been a lot more bluefins seen in other places. It's interesting. I haven't heard about them in Texas, but I wonder what's going on there. That I don't that know. They seeing just that. they just broke
2: the new state record or broke the state record like three or four weeks ago with one that was I think it was seven hundred eighty six pounds.
3: Okay, so these um, aren't just the tiny. No, these are, the, these are these are the big deal. breeding.
2: Yeah, these are monster tunas.
3: Well, you know, and they there's been. To. Go ahead.
2: No, I mean there's there literally been dozens of them caught that i know of in the last two years specifically out at the floaters which are anywhere from 100 to 150 miles offshore of the texas coast you know in that two to three thousand foot of water range we're not seeing them in close but they are showing up more over here maybe it's just more people fishing you know and, and people recording and, and bringing these things up to the surface but uh it's definitely been interesting to hear about all these
3: i know i mean i hope that means that there are more of them and that's what that's what that is signaling towards but you don't you, you can't make a correlation of that just because people are seeing more doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that there're more of them i mean there are also more cell phones with video there are also Absolutely. different methods of fishing there're also you know more center console type boats going way out further than than mm-hmm. than normal which leads to more people just on the water at all i mean the same thing with the great white shark um in, in the Keys, it was, you know, seemingly unheard of for most people that there were great white sharks around. Now, the commercial fishermen I knew, they know there have been great white sharks there for yes. a long time, and they just never said anything about them. But um, after Chris Fisher, um, you know, tags all these sharks, and then you have this <coughs> these tracking things, well, sure enough, they come right through there and they come right through South Carolina and they come through all these places. And It's like, huh, well, maybe, maybe we have been seeing them more yeah. or, or, you know, maybe none are being sighted, but there are obviously some around and it could be the same thing for the bluefin tuna. One of the coolest stories I ever heard about the bluefin tuna was, uh. Was a guy named Tom Pierce, and he's a legendary fisherman. He fished a lot in Key West and Sebastian Inlet, and he's just hes a, a real um, gem, really. He's, he's done it all, hmm. he's, he's got a tremendous amount of knowledge and, and experience. And uh, he was telling me that um, they used to have the tournaments in the Bahamas, and they were tuna tournaments for bluefin. And huh. that people did not see that giant fish as a food fish; they it was not considered a food fish then. And they used to just take them in, weigh them, and then when the tournament was over, they tie them all by the tails and they drag them out to the edge of the the ledge and just sink them. Wow! And those fish now, you know, that's a twenty, thirty thousand dollar fish, and yeah. it's just funny. It's just a fish that nobody considered them valuable
2: yeah and they have a they have a mystique around them you know i mean one of the things i talked extensively with al mcglass down in australia about is he's you know he's a huge advocate for for fishing policies and things like that and um, he just did a documentary on the um the bluefin species down there um the southern bluefin and um i highly recommend watching that i think it's called life on the line um but i'm um, just talking about how the changes over time in the fishing aspect like what you're talking about you know and how now they're managed um to be successful in the commercial fishing industry and still have a good population to Mm. keep reproducing and stuff and uh, it's totally different than anything i've seen done here you know um, as far as how they fish for them and stuff and um it's a pretty cool thing to watch and um but um yeah i mean it's just a, a unique species um and talking about chris you know i had chris and brett on the show um earlier this year and uh i've known chris for a while and, and we do a lot of shark tagging at work and um so we'll, we've we utilized spot tags and and the psat tags and different things like that and and um it's incredible to see where these sharks go over a short amount of time we uh we we haven't tagged any great whites obviously but we we tag a lot of um bull sharks, black tips, spinners. Um, we've tagged a few tiger sharks and scalloped and greater hammerheads and things like that. And we tagged a bull shark over here off of Galveston one year and within two weeks that fish. And normally we don't, we don't put a satellite tag on a bull shark cause they're not a basking shark. They don't really come to the surface a lot, but um, we were trying to get some tags out for A&M and they went ahead and tagged this shark. And uh, it was a big um, male, um, probably about 300 pounds and within two weeks, that fish was swimming 80 miles up the Mississippi River.
3: Up the Mississippi. From here. Wow. Yeah. He was, was eighty miles up the Mississippi. Yeah. And those, so where would those that, have been where known would that put him? Uh, 80 miles past, up from Venice? That probably would past New Orleans, I would think. For sure. Or, so Yeah. But that um, makes that makes a lot of sense with uh with the with bull shark. I mean, I don't know how yeah. many people have fished in the mouth of the Mississippi like that. I mean, even like just five or 10 miles up the Mississippi, but Mm -hmm. I've been there with my friend, Anthony Randazzo and he shows you, he's like, well, the trout are here. And you're like, how do you know? And he's like, look at the bottom machine. And I'm looking at the bottom machine. I'm like, well, it looks like it's 15 feet deep. And he goes, yeah, but from there to there is trout thick. I thought we were marking the bottom. We're yeah. marking the top of the trout school, and it's like a carpet across the bottom of the Mississippi River. Isn't that crazy? So many trout. I mean, I can't even imagine uncountable numbers of mm-hmm. of trout. And uh, just the health of that area is is unbelievable, how That's many mean. fish and what that river dumping into the Gulf of Mexico does to create a fishing habitat or a fishery habitat for, for fish species to grow. I mean, it's gotta be the most valuable, um, place as far as the ocean goes, that has to be one of the most valuable places in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's just, it's a fish factory. I mean, that's what you hear people talk about, but until you see that and, and then you, you jump up on plane and you run, you know, a mile and it's still like that. You're like, yep. well, it's been like that since where we left. And he's like, Yeah, this time of the year. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, and, just incredible numbers of fish.
2: And that's why I think people see Louisiana and, and uh you know they have very liberal limits on a lot of their species to keep and stuff for people. And, and it's because of that. They have so many fish over there. But um, you know, bull sharks are funny, they're they love fresh water. And mm-hmm. they've, they've been known to go, I think over a thousand miles up the Mississippi river system. Um, they've been tracked that far up North, but, um, you know, we, we have a very freshwater influenced uh, ecosystem here in Galveston Bay with several rivers dumping in and, um, they thrive here. I mean, this is a nursery for them. They have their young in the Bay here, they grow up and then they move out offshore, um, you know we have a lot of black tips in the bay too um but uh, the passes are where you're going to see most of the other the bigger predatory mm-hmm. you know the ones you they're famous when the tiger sharks and the hammerheads
3: and stuff so with so, the tagging that you've done what else have you learned about these sharks did you have any other other interesting <laughs> movement we've
2: not we've noticed that um some of the species um you know come and go you know in different patterns you know like um a real common shark i'm sure over in florida atlantic sharp nose Mm -hmm. and we have over here you know with the white spots all over it um we've had a couple years where they were just gone you know Mm -hmm. we weren't seeing any of them and normally we catch you know we're utilizing a a long line so it's basically a mile long trot line basically Mm -hmm. it's got 100 hooks on it and we'll catch anywhere from 30 to 70 fish in an hour on these things and
3: this is all for research
2: yep so so we do it for an hour so the survival rate's high and um we, we tag everything um all, all the sharks um everything's weighed and measured whether it's a game fish or shark or whatnot we've got a we started we, we've been doing that for about 11 or 12 years here um we started catching so many big sharks we end up having to have a cradle made so we've got a giant cradle it's about eight foot long and uh, that we can pull these bigger fish into to get them up on the boat, and uh, it's pretty it's pretty exciting. I'll send you a video of, of one of those um, processes being done. But uh, and then you're uh, tagging
3: them, weighing them, measuring, them, yep, all that. Yep. So the you're obviously these this long line's got wire, right? Like a wire leader. It's
2: all monofilament. Really? Yep. The, yeah, it's crazy. the The ganchons that we use, the leaders attached to the main line, uh-huh. are seven seven hundred pound test. And then they just got a like a fifteen knot must add circle hook on them. And then um, the main line's twelve hundred. We we so were how, how
3: often with seven hundred I mean, I don't use seven hundred pound monofilament. but maybe that's enough. <laughs> but how often do you just see see a gangan that has no hook on it?
2: Uh not not very often. The, the the problem we have is you know, we'll catch some of these smaller sharks uh-huh. and these bigger bull sharks and stuff will come up and eat them. Right. You know then they get hooked and so sometimes we will get a chafe issue there where they'll they'll eventually bite through so we've had a couple you know but um surprisingly enough when those big sharks get on we've had more issues with them um they'll swim they're so big you know four or five hundred pound shark will pull these gangens down and bunch up and then he'll start chewing on the main line and we've had that happen several times where they've chewed through the main line you know and got off and um so we then we have to go to the other end and. Reconnect the line and pull it back in from that direction, um, which is a pain in the rear. But you, know, you got to get it back on the boat. So, right. Um, but um, we've had we've had one bull shark that I know was over five hundred pounds, just based on sizes of these other four hundred plus we've caught. And um, he was so big that was before we had our cradles. So there was nothing we could do with him. But uh, it was pretty incredible to see a fish that big so close. You know, to yeah. where we fish all the time. You know, most people just don't really think there's that many sharks over here in texas but they're all over. Sure there are a lot
3: of people wading over there oh up yeah to their neck yep. like that is an interesting thing with texas they go they, they they i mean i get it when the when the water's too sh- too shallow for your boat to go or it's going to be yeah. weird and you can't see into the water so you get out and wade but we noticed a lot of people getting out in chest deep water and wading um mm-hmm. and leaving their boat right there and i i just didn't that didn't i mean I'm sure there's a reason for it and and I still kind of scratch my head a little bit um but that was definitely what was going i don't do on. a lot
2: of i don't do a lot of wade fishing I like my boat but uh um I'm in the water enough it works so yeah. but uh there's a lot i mean fishing fishing's huge especially in this bay system and uh well you people, know I think it's, people explained
3: uh, it to me that you know you're feeling these depressions and and you're in this basically this this deserted flat where it's all the same. And if you can find this little depression, that's a little bit deeper than, than the surrounding areas, it could be loaded up with fish. And you may not be able to see that in your boat. You may not be able to feel that unless you're pushing with a push pole. So if you've got a trolling motor, you're not going to notice a a three, four Mm. or five inch depression that could hold a lot of fish. So I I get that. That's, I, I mean, I certainly understand that, but yeah, chest deep. Yeah, seems, I don't seems know. Seems a little on the extreme side for me. Not me. Yeah. So, <laughs> hey, well, tell me about the the issue. When we first started talking, you said that that flounder was a big issue in Texas. What's the issue with flounder in Texas?
2: Yeah. So we've been um, seeing a, a decline in certain year classes um, through all of our sampling that we do. And, um, and, and, and the public, you know, has brought it up multiple times and it's a hot topic for sure. And, um, you know, we've, the state has went in and trying to be proactive and kind of alleviate some of the things that we're seeing possibly coming in the future with, um, you know, decrease in numbers due Mm -hmm. to to this and flounder, you know, they're a very unique species in that they have to have certain parameters when they spawn out in the Gulf, Water temperature is the most important one. Um, if it doesn't get cold enough in the winter, you know they just don't have a good spawn. And we we have had a lot of warm winters recently. Um, the last few have been fairly cold, so we're, we're expecting to see good numbers. And we have been seeing quite a few juvenile flounder coming back in the bay system this year. Yeah, um, from this past winter. Um, but um, you know they've they've you know when I moved down here, it was crazy because you could keep ten flounder. Um, And then you had a possession limit, I think, of 20. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the guy, you know, gigging is huge over here. So it's not a game fish in Texas. So you could go out and catch 10 fish and then go back out after midnight and catch another 10 and keep 20 fish. And obviously, you know, with a species that's potentially declining, that's not going to be the greatest thing in the world to have happen. Right. And uh, so they've they've changed the regulations down and dropped the, the possession limit down to 10. And then now it's down to five um so most of the year you can keep five flounder 15 inches and up now and then um we're we've had to implement a total closure now during the fall run between November 1st and December 14th or 15th um so starting this year there will be no uh, retaining flounder during that time that 6 weeks and then it'll open back up to five fish so it'll be interesting to see we'll have take a couple of years to see what that regulation change does Um, And if it goes back, you know, where they open it back up, which who knows what will happen. That's, that's not my, my department, but Mm -hmm. um, you know, we go out and collect the samples and things, but uh, you know, definitely trying to be proactive in uh, helping the species get back to where we want it. Okay. But you know, it's crazy because we've also had the last few years man. we've seen record numbers of flounder being caught. And, uh, and a lot of that's, there's just so many more people on the water you know, a lot of people fish and there's so many guides over here, um, you know, taking three, four people out, you know, and and catching a lot of fish. Um, but what we're seeing is in a year or two, you know, we're seeing the, the, the stock to start Hmm. going down.
3: So what would be like in your, in your, um, your, your, your job as working for the fisheries, what's the next step there when you notice a decline like that in any species, what is, What is the next step? Do you, you mount a study or do you pay, you know, make it a species of interest or what do you, what do you do?
2: Stock enhancement is what we're working on right now. Um, Hatching these fish in a, in a hatchery. Um,
1: Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com.
2: You know, Parks and Wildlife has really been one of the leaders in the country as far as being able to, to grow out flounder in in-house mm. um and it's at a small level now but you know with cca and other groups helping fund some of these research projects they just completed a whole new hatchery building down here just south of me um specifically for flounder um, they have a half the building geared towards growing the rotifers and stuff to feed these fish when they hatch um, and then the other half the building and this is a multi-million dollar facility mm. that they've they've started and uh, you know you know, they stock millions and millions of trout and redfish on the Texas coast a year. And it does, we have a, you know, you wouldn't think we did, we did a study probably 10 years ago, um, to see the percentage of fish in the wild. Um, how many of those are from the hatcheries? How do you and tell have that? A, They, they have some kind of genetic marker that they, they utilize. So they take a DNA um, sample
3: and they can tell if it's okay. And so
2: we had, we had over 5% of the fish we were seeing were coming from hatcheries, which is super high. It's usually one to 2% from what I've, what I've seen in the past. Um, So it does make an impact, you know, putting these fish back in the wild. Um, So we're hoping, you know, they can get the flounder stuff um, all nailed down that, one day they'll be able to be start putting millions of flounder back in the bay, mm. you know, just like the trout and redfish, but they are a lot harder to deal with just because of the temperature variations and, and stuff. And, um, you know, the flounder can change male to female at birth, depending on, on the temperature of the water, a certain percentage
3: of them will. And so is it what, what causes them to change warmer water or cooler water?
2: The warm, the, the colder water will determine, you know, if you have more
3: females versus males. And so if you're hatching these fish, you want more females. I'm assuming. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So, you, so you know, they, they know the, the temperature that will yeah, result it's like, in that.
2: I forget. It's, it's in the, it's gotta be, I can't remember if it's 65 to 67 degrees Fahrenheit, the water temperature has got to be, you know, and, and a lot of times the Gulf water is still in the seventies in the winter, um, out where they're spawning. And, and, and that's, you know, that's kind of the other hard part about flounders. They spawn in such a vast, array of area offshore. We don't really know that much about them. Has it's anybody
3: ever to... seen that flounder spawn offshore? Well, we have a lot of a lot of
2: they've they've done some they're they're doing a lot of acoustic tagging in yeah. these fish now. And so they're putting array, you know, they've got mm-hmm. different receivers and stuff all over the place. And so they're starting to see those fish move, you know, further out. But I mean people have caught the southern flounder over here, you know, almost a hundred miles offshore. Mm. You know, so we know that they're going out there, um, but without attaching the camera to them, you know it's so hard to, yeah, to track. I, these I just things. wonder
3: what that would look like—a flounder spawn. I mean, we have you know different spawns in Florida that are that are really of note, like the mutton snapper spawn is one in particular, mm-hmm. and uh, you know divers can go down and, and check it out. Like it's there are areas that they do it, and you know mostly it's at night, but you could conceivably see that with your yeah. with your eyes. And um uh the permit spawn is another one where I don't I don't know if you're gonna see spawning behavior, but you certainly see a lot of fish balled up mm-hmm. offshore, you know. But I wonder what the flounder spawn would look like. If that would happen yeah, on I don't the bottom know. or if that would happen middle mid water column or how they would do that.
2: Yeah, I'm not for sure. I just know that the the eggs will float and they come back into the into the estuaries, you know, and that's where they they start growing up, so um, it's it's a definitely a, a mysterious fish, I guess yeah, you could well, say. It, so. it is
3: a mysterious fish. It's a weird fish and a delicious yep. fish, and so the fact that it's a delicious fish would tend to lend itself towards more studies being done for it, and even mm-hmm. a even a potentially commercially harvested fish, um, I guess um yeah, I mean, yeah you we see are. a lot of flounder in in restaurants and stuff right mm-hmm. like i mean it is a, a commercially viable species yes with some i mean how would they how do they fish for flounder uh commercially
2: we have commercial giggers, giggers. um over here the limits are a little bit different a little bit higher for those guys but they don't um, mess with rod and have,
3: or hook and line
2: no not usually mm-hmm. um um, but, uh, those have also been tightened. I can't remember what the exact numbers are right now, Tom, but, but I know they have, they have been tightened on the commercial side as well, just because of everything that's going on. So, um, but, um, you know, there, there's, uh, there's also, I think some, cause like you'll go to a lot of like the Asian markets and stuff and you'll see flounder that have obviously been, you know, farm raised fish mm. somehow and um um you know because you know, redfish is a game fish in right. texas they cannot right. be commercially fished along with spotted sea trout so um you'll see a lot of those that are farm raised and you know usually i think over they bring them in from louisiana and stuff like that so mm. to sell um but <laughs> that's but tricky, yeah flounder
3: man. you got a bunch of you got a bunch of game fish in a in a in a uh in a fish market seems like how do you know that they are yeah, it's, paper it's easy trail. to say yeah
2: yeah they yeah, gotta have are, the
3: documentation so yeah, i guess so. it's
2: tough man I, i'd hate to be a game warden so <laughs> it's interesting so much stuff uh you you would like to,
3: you would like to have this guy that i just had on the podcast uh on your podcast i'm sure you guys have a lot of talk to, lot to talk about but wayne saunders he does mm-hmm. the uh warden's watch podcast he just joined waypoint too so you can get in touch with him really easily but nice. uh man he's he's just got cool stories and he's been a game warden all over the place as far you know national park uh ranger and all kinds of different things and um he's just got a lot of different i mean if you ever need that voice of of a yeah. of 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 a law enforcement kind of game warden type person he's a good one to have on the on the show but we i had a really fun time talking to him um what about the oysters you also mentioned that, that that's another issue you got going on
2: yeah we've so you know the hurricanes have really done a number over here on us since 2008 with Hurricane Ike, and we had Rita right before that, and then Katrina right before that, and and um, but Hurricane Ike really wiped out a lot of the oyster population in Galveston mm-hmm. Bay, and um, you know our bay system is a little over 600 square miles, and it, that system basically covered up about 80 to 85% of our live oyster reefs mm-hmm. and with silt. just
3: with killed silt them. Yeah. You know, just or, covered uh, them up yeah.
2: with silt. And, um, they, you know, they're not going to survive with that. And so we, um, you know, we had to basically formed a new, um, department i guess in in our division working extensively on oyster habitat development and stuff and so we we've tried lots of different things working heavily with the commercial industry you know um, back then we did some bagless dredging so they would go out with their oyster dredges you know Mm -hmm. which are like 48 inches wide and take the bags off we were trying to just pull the the shell material back up Mm -hmm. to the top so did that work you know when when we have it worked to an extent um it was a lot of work for sure um but with that we also started testing different colch materials um different types of river rock and things like that that would work best for spat which is the baby oysters mm-hmm. to attach to and so we found um i can't remember what kind of rock it was what bedrock but they found some that was working really well and so we started utilizing money um, from from the federal money we were getting um, to purchase this rock and bring in and start planting these reefs over um, on historically live reef areas and in some new areas to build new reefs. And we, we had um, reefs that we built that were anywhere from 20 to 100 plus acres in size all over the bay and um, where the salinity levels are good for oysters to grow. And, uh, you know, o- the oyster habitat here is, you know, huge area for us to fish i mean that's where most most people are fishing oyster reefs and stuff over here especially in the summertime for trout and things like that and um and so that made a big impact on the fishery um and and the health you know i mean we've seen higher turbidity levels in the water just because the water is not getting filtered as much and things and so we kind of got through hurricane ike and started rebuilding that and then um we're doing pretty good and then uh recently we had hurricane harvey come in and did the total opposite and just inundated us with nearly 60 inches of rainwater in a couple days and all that fresh water stayed in the bay for nearly a month and basically killed all the oysters again and so we're back you know doing similar things over again now so but we've also changed a lot of the regulations for the commercial guys and and um they're you know just trying to bring more people to the table and help rebuild these these reefs and stuff with new colts new rock new shell um so part of those regulations is requiring these these companies that run these oyster boats you know to give back and put more material back every year um to help you know replenish the stock that they're taking out
3: interesting uh what about cca are they helping with with those type things i know they do in florida cca
2: does yeah cca does a lot um they do a lot of ongoing projects throughout the year all up and down texas coast obviously um working on oyster reefs you know and then um um just other general habitat restoration projects you know in areas that are heavily eroded and things like that um and then we also have here in galveston we've got the galveston bay foundation which does a lot of of stuff with oysters um they do a, a big program where um you know, people are growing oysters in bags mm-hmm. on their docks yep. and then they'll go and collect all those and then plant oyster reefs with those, um, every year. So, um, you know, and, and, uh, but there's Blair, a lot of good groups.
3: Yeah. Blair Wiggins is working with the CCA in, in Florida mm-hmm. to, to, um, help the water quality through, through initiatives like that. And they've been really successful, I think with, with, with that. And they yeah, that, the bag thing on the docks and, um, you know, getting a lot of people involved as well as, you know, just, just spreading the word and raising awareness that, that, uh, this is certainly an issue. Um, yeah, well, good. I'm glad that, that people are involved with that for sure. But it's a shame that, that, uh, you know, the the oyster is such a important part of the filtration of the, of the water. Mm -hmm. Like it is, it is the ocean filter. And, uh, when they go, either through natural process or through our own mistakes it's not good
2: yeah yeah the good thing is they grow pretty quick so three years and you'll have um you know an oyster that's legally harvestable you know they got to be three inches long um so they grow about an inch a year and um, like you said they can filter crazy amounts of water per day so
3: i know i know that's cool all right so um it's cool catching up with you and everything. I want to yeah. uh, ask you some quick questions. All and right. This is the fun part. All <laughs> right. So first of all, I want to know where the best barbecue in Texas is.
2: Oh, man. Uh, my favorite place is probably Cooper's, the original up in Llano, mm. Texas.
3: What's the so. best there? Is it ribs or is it brisket Oh, they've got a pork chop that's
2: about that thick. Hell yeah. And, uh, <laughs> man, yeah. If we get you over here next year, we'll have to swing through there. So. I'd
3: say so, <laughs> because Texas is known for barbecue and uh, and good food. So that's cool. All right. So you got a choice. You can buy, you can rent, you can sell these three All things. Right. You got a fly rod, a spin rod, and a bait caster.
2: Oh man. I'm gonna buy a, a spinning rod for sure. Mm-hmm. So, that's just always been my most versatile tool. Okay, which one so, are you renting?
3: Uh, fly rod. Okay, which one are you selling? The baitcaster cuz Probably. <laughs> you got too many of them or why?
2: <laughs> I just don't use me, you know, being a charter fisherman down here, um, spinning rods are the way to go for most of my clientele.
3: That's interesting so, because yeah. when we were fishing those redfish tournaments, there was definitely a, a line where you, you crossed into Louisiana and people were all about the bait caster. Then you yep. crossed another line where they were back into the spinning rod. And then when you went over to Texas, you nobody wanted any spinning rods. Like yeah. it, it was just an interesting kind of thing. Cause I never understood it. I'm like, so you feel like you can throw a baitcaster into a thirty mile an hour wind with a weightless plastic, like <laughs> as far as I can throw the spinning rod? Like and and some of those guys were like, Yep. Sure can. Yep. I am like, okay. I mean, good for you, because it's gonna be a bird's nest with me. But uh they were hundred percent dead set on it, didn't see any use for a spin and run. But it's interesting because yep. Yep. maybe they just hadn't tried it much. All right, so um if you had the choice, you have to you you either can hunt or you can fish. That's the only thing you can do for the rest of your life. Which is it? <sighs>
2: Ten years ago, the answer would have been different, but I think hunting would be it now,
3: hunting yep. as
2: much as I like to
3: fish and what's your what's your species of choice Turkeys turkeys right on yep.
2: Okay. obviously,
3: yep, <laughs> very cool. your turkey hunting would <sighs> the rattlesnake part uh we all about that <laughs> I know we have rattlesnakes too, but In the area that I hunt the most, there are, I've never seen a rattlesnake, and that's why it's the area that I hunt the most. There's probably more turkeys other places, but I know that there are also rattlesnakes there, so I'm not crazy about the the rattlesnakes.
2: Your boys ratted you out when they were over here in Texas saying that you do not like snakes. I am so crazy about, I'm
3: (laughs) not crazy about snakes. I mean, I don't have like a phobia, but. I also don't like poison ivy and I don't get close yeah. to either one of them. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, why, why do you want to mess with it? Why do I want to pick up poison ivy? <laughs> it, I could drop it and, and, or fall down and rub it all over myself. I don't know. I don't want to do that. Ugh. So like somebody was asking me the other day, they were like, what, okay, what, do you have a, uh, a cure for poison ivy? And I said, mm. yeah, learn how to identify it six feet away and don't go there. That's how yep. I that's my cure for poison ivy that's don't the best one don't get there, don't go there like if there's a if you have a place to sit and it's all brown and and you know a one tree that's all brown with dead leaves all around it, and then you have another tree that's got all this bright green growth around it. I don't yeah. even have to identify it. I'm not sitting over there. I'm want to sit yeah. on the brown one right like that's that's just to me that's just uh common sense, but that common sense only comes from being covered with poison ivy a few times in my life to where you're like, yeah. I'm not doing that again. Yeah. The worst. My dad is- just
2: has to get near it and he gets it and he breaks near out. It? Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, uh
3: some people have I mean, I'm not super uh allergic to it or anything, but I can certainly get it. And it's not fun when you do get it. But um the the worst that I've seen is I did not know that those hairy vines that go up the trees were poison sumac or poison something. And, uh, Mm -hmm. I climbed a tree to get, um, to put up a tree stand and I got that stuff all over me, man, all over (sighs) me. And that was really bad. So I don't mess with hairy vines anymore and I don't sit in bright green vegetation. Um, that's a good way. Okay, cool, man. Well, um, uh, I appreciate you having the boys down there and I know they had a really good time and they met some really interesting people, um, and, and have been telling me all about it. So I hope that next year, this, uh, summit that you're doing will continue to grow. And, and, uh, I'd love to, I'd love to come next year. Um, it'd be awesome, but I know there were some great podcasts that were done there. Um, while you guys were there.
2: You know, we had we had we had such a wide variety of guests that came. I mean, I know I know you probably know who was there, but I mean, we had um, a guy from Oklahoma, Todd Craighead, who hosts the outdoor Oklahoma show up there. And then we had Lou Murillo, who is a a writer for Texas Fishing Game magazine, but he lives in New York. But he is also goes by the name of Eric Adams and he is also the lead singer for the heavy metal band man of war and uh you know just you know heavy metal and turkey hunting he's like how the heck does that come together but lou was um you know just an incredible person to have in camp with us, and uh, i know the boys enjoyed getting to to talk to him and stuff and the um hopefully get up to go up to new york and do some turkey hunting with him sometime soon wow,
3: that would be cool to to turkey hunt in new york because that's not a place that i would be like i'm going turkey hunting and the dream yeah. destination is new york um but i'm sure yep. that there are some fantastic i mean i've i've been to upstate new york around the lake placid area and all that mm-hmm. it 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 looks like there's a lot of good turkey hunting up there,
2: yep. I mean, there should yeah, there's be. a lot of a lot of birds up there so um yeah it's it's a crazy you know and next year we're hoping to have more 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 podcasters more guests come in um we're going to be doing it at a bigger ranch and have a lot more stuff to go on and uh really looking forward and super excited about what's to come with the hunt fish podcast deal
3: nice so. nice well i wish you all the luck with it and uh it's great catching up with you again today we'll do it again um but let everybody know how to how to get a hold of you how to follow what you're doing
2: yeah absolutely so you can find me at uh, uh, my charter spot stalker guide service or spot stalker fishing on instagram and facebook and um impact outdoors podcast you know facebook instagram um we're super excited to be part of waypoint collective now nice. and uh being on there and um you know being able to get some great content out and uh please follow us along there and, and listen to all our interviews
3: all right i'm sure they will i'm sure so, they will well Derek. Always nice to catch up with you and good job on all the kids' work that you're doing. That's super important. Um, Thanks, Tom. That'll be it for today, man. We'll catch up again soon. All right. Sounds Thanks, good. Derek. See you. See you.
0: Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tuning to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8 30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.